You know, as we were singing those songs, I was looking at my hands and realized that uh, I had some paint left on them because this week I've been doing a lot of painting at my house and I tried hard to make sure all the paint was gone before I dressed up in my Sunday best, but sure enough, it, there were still some spots underneath around my fingers and we were singing about God's love. And it was just a reminder to me and maybe for you too that there's, there's times when we tried to clean ourselves up for God's love. We try to clean ourselves up to come and be a part of a church service. There's times when we try to clean ourselves up for one another, or we just try to leave our week at the door. And just as the, as the student team reminded us, God's love knows no bounds. It doesn't want us to clean ourselves up for God's love. In fact, there's absolutely nothing that we can do that can make God love us any more than he already does. Amen? And that's what you and I, that's the good news that you and I, I think, need to be reminded of this morning. And it's who we really pray and hope we are as a church, that we are not coming here to clean ourselves up for one another, but to bring us with all of our messiness and need for grace to one another and to God and to be reminded of that and to praise him for that as we come together and gather here and wherever you are. So, hey, as we continue on in our service, I, I want to encourage us, just would you turn around and just say hi, wave at someone that you've been worshiping with this morning. If you're watching online, say hi to some people that you're worshiping with, and then uh, you can have a seat. All right, well, uh, go, ahead and, go ahead and have a seat. If that's one of the more awkward parts of your week, uh, thanks, for going, thanks for going there with me, I know. But the reason why we do that is because we're here as, as a community. We're here as a family. And so uh, it's just good to get to know who we're with and who we're journeying with together. Really, who we are as a church. Community is our middle name as Heartland Community Church. So whatever we can do to live into that and help you make um, connections with other people. Our whole reason for being around is to make space for building relationships like we just did to make Jesus first. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brad Herndon, and I'm here as our Communities and Discipleship Pastor. And last Wednesday night, I got to spend time with so many of you, several hundred of you came out, speaking of community and connection and fun. We had a lot of fun out in the backyard. Who was at our second Heartland Summer Nights? Yeah. It was a good time. We had lots of fun, food, live music, and we wanted to give, for those of you who chose not to come, that's fine but we wanna make you feel really bad about it. And so we're gonna play a short video clip of everything that you missed out on so that you can know next time we've got another one coming up. So let's, let's watch this video together. just a glimpse of some of the fun, really a lot of the fun that we were having was just reconnecting with old friends, getting to meet some new ones. And so I know I don't really want to make you feel bad about it, but I do want you to think twice if you're planning on missing the one that we've got coming up in August. So we've had two already. We're going to finish out the summer with one more summer night. So this one's going to be a little bit different than our first two. This is going to be our baptism celebration. We're really hoping to throw one of the biggest parties of the year because that's, that's how exciting baptism is. When people uh, begin their new life with Christ, when they declare before us and before the world, you know what? I want to live for Jesus. I want him to be the most important thing in my life. And so we don't think baptism is something uh, that we shouldn't, we think it's something that we really should um, celebrate in the best way possible. So Wednesday night, August 11th, uh, we're going to have our third summer night. And if you're interested in learning more about baptism, maybe you have some questions about it, maybe you're considering being baptized if you've never taken that step as a follower of Jesus, reach out to us. If you're watching online, drop a, a note in the comment window, send us an email, because we have some things coming up where we would love to share more with you about what baptism is and how you can take that step with us at our end of the year summer nights. But uh, another cool opportunity happened around here. Not only do we love connecting, we also love being a light uh, and bringing life into our community. And we have an awesome opportunity to be able to do that as the hands and the feet of Jesus. You know, we're heading into a brand new school year. And it's safe to say that the past couple years have been one of the wildest rides that families and schools and teachers and especially students have been having. And so we want to make it as easy as we can, uh, especially by letting them know, hey, we're for you. 
We're for you. We want to take care of you however we can. And so uh, next week, uh, we would love for you to come back with a backpack in hand and some school supplies. This is something we do every year, but this year is a special year because of the need that's in our community and just because of the turbulent schedule that our kids have had. So we have an opportunity. So uh, here is the, this is actually the Herndon. This is what Team Herndon um, picked out as a backpack for a kindergartner going into this year. Um, I, I say it was Team Herndon. I actually had nothing to do with this. My wife and the kids took care of getting all of the supplies that are in this pack and picking out the backpack. But something you can do as a family or if you jump in with another family or maybe if you're meeting with a small group, you guys can adopt a backpack, is go get the supplies. Uh, grab one of these uh, uh, supply lists out in the lobby. You can find them anywhere on a table. Make sure you grab one of these and uh, take it with you. And not only get the supplies, but pray for whoever it is that is going to receive the backpack that you're dropping off next week. And just pray for their year. Pray for their school. Pray for their teacher. A great thing to be able to do with your kids to help them think about the person that they're going to be blessing this year. That they don't know the name of, but God does. And we get to love them well. So here's, here's the other deal. is uh, Last year, we set a goal of 200. And we brought in 300 backpacks. So that's pretty awesome. So obviously, we undershot uh, but you guys were so generous, as you obviously always are. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to go big, all right? So how about this year we go 300, and uh, we see if we can meet that. What do you think? Yeah. Not, is, that not, is that not strong enough? You feel like, I feel like we can do better. 400? Should we go 400? Yes. Yeah. Do I hear a five? <laughs> 500? Do I have a five? Anyone? Yeah. I mean, if we don't think we can do it, I'll back off to 400. But what do we think we got? I mean, it's the love of Jesus is in us. Do you think we can do 500? Okay. All right. We're going 500. And it's on me if we don't get there. Okay. So just as one of your new pastors, like, I really got to get this right. Okay. This is, this is going to be important. So uh, don't fail me now, Heartland. So 500 it is. So online 500, we're counting on you as well. Grab one of these lists in the lobby. Come back next week, backpack in hand. 500, we can do it. But today, uh, we're going to continue our series where we've been talking about what, what Jesus calls us to be ready for more of, that he is always offering more of himself, not less, and some of the promises, the blessings, the abundant life he invites us into. And so we get to hear from our new leadership and teaching pastor again this week, Dan Jacobson, as we talk about ready for more joy. Who's, who's wanting more joy? All right, bring it up, Dan. I, I think what we all just heard was Brad said, if you just bring five backpacks, I'll provide 495. <laughs> Is that the deal? Was that the contract we just made? I want some clarity on that. Um, and and uh, generosity. Is, here's what I love about Brad already. Generosity is a strong suit of his, and that's so rare these days. And I think, man, uh, I'm excited to see what happens as we just are generous people. So thank you for that. Hey, uh, welcome everybody who's uh, watching online. Hey, everybody here in the room. Uh, how we doing today? We doing all right? You're like, you're like, I feel like I got to go run out to Target real fast and take care of a backpack before we do anything else. Um, please do that uh, in 25, 30 minutes. Um, but uh, here, here's a question I want to... Um, I posed to our online uh, viewers who are watching and joining with us uh, today. The question was this, and I want to ask the same question to you. I grew up in a specific era of Americana. I understand this about myself. I, I understand that uh, there was a, a situation that I was born into. It was a, a period, many people uh, uh, in the culinary world know it as the box period. H here's what I mean. All of the food that I grew up with, because I'm a product of the 80s, it was processed, purified, uh, 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 it, was, it was disgusting, and it was uh, out of uh, boxes. Mixes, cake mixes. Uh, I asked online, what's the worst mix that we actually ever had in America? And um, I just love this. Natalie said the worst mix that ever came out of the 80s was a thing called Hamburger Helper. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. I totally agree. Uh, not to be outdone, another person online said tuna helper was worse. And it's so true. How many know you just add the word tuna to something and it just automatically went down in quality? I mean, hamburger helper. Who, who needed to help a hamburger? The problem with that person wasn't the meat. It was the cook. Can we all agree? 
Someone said ramen. I love ramen, ramen. And then it, the whole thing degraded into this love for ramen online. So all of you guys are, are great. For me, it was uh, my, my mom made uh, Betty Crocker mixes all the time. Love you, mom. You're a great cook. But everything came out of a box. It was all just like our shopping trips. There was this fresh, fresh area that I knew nothing of. It was just go in, just do this with all the boxes along the sides. And we even did it with orange juice. Do you remember Tang? Tang. What was Tang? Orange juice mix. Disgusting. Disgusting. One day, I remember my mom, um, we, we had just moved and we had just gone blueberry picking. And if you've ever gone blueberry picking, it's like a thing we did up in near Chicagoland. Um, you, you know that like in the store, you buy like the little pint of blueberries. But when you go blueberry picking, you go and you get like a basket full of blueberries. This is a, a, a quantity that will feed an entire state of people. And you come back, you don't have any idea what to do with it. And my mom decided for herself to mix it up a little bit. And so one day she, um, she did the impossible. She, she, she cooked. <laughs> no, 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 no. From scratch. Scratch. I didn't know what scratch was. It was like this thing that she had to explain to me. Scratch is when there's no box. There's no mix. You just, you, the baker, you, you make it all yourself. And so my mom made a blueberry cobbler. This was such an event. This was such a moment. This is why it stands out in my mind. We had a party for the blueberry cobbler. <laughs> like we invited our neighbors over. I remember some of our best friends from that time came over. There was nothing being celebrated except for the, the baker and that which was baked, the cobbler. And I remember um, it was so disgusting. We would never do this in COVID world now, but we all took a spoon and we all huddled around it on the countertop and um, my mom was just beaming with joy and, and we all dug in and ate it. And, and here's what every person said. They said, wow, this is better than the box. <laughs> Which I think to real bakers is an insult, not a compliment. Better than the box, better than the box. I, you, we all know, you know, Hamburger Helper has nothing on a real hamburger, right? I mean, Tang has nothing on fresh squeezed orange juice. There, there is something about this phrase, better than the box, something about this experience of authenticity, something when we get the real thing, when, when we actually allow the real thing to come into our lives, that it, it's unexpectedly good, it's joyful, it's uncommon even. There's a story of Jesus's life found in John chapter two, and I'd love to invite you today. I'm gonna to kind of walk through some of the text. So it'd be awesome if you just kind of had a copy of it to make sure I wasn't lying. Uh, you can just Google John two, and then it'll pop right up for you. But, but there's a story in Jesus's life where this uncommon situation comes up. Something happens where like it's authentic, it's real, it's, ex it's exciting, it's unexpected. And I think uh, someday in heaven, John, the guy who wrote this is gonna give me a fist bump and say that better than the box thing was really good for John too. Because he tells us how Jesus is better than the box. There's a story, and um, those of you who, uh, well, you'll, you'll see it when you get there. Uh, those of you who grew up in churches, who um, were a little bit more on like the legalistic side, um, hang in there with me, okay? Jesus loves us too. Um, and we'll see, we'll see. I said us, I, that was me too. Uh, there, there's this thing here that kind of makes us uncomfortable, but that's okay, we'll get, we'll get through it. And I wanna show you, here's, here's what it is that Jesus is better than. Some, something happens in the story where Jesus brings about authenticity and, and realness in a way that transforms everything. Check this out, he says, John tells us this. On the third day, I just want you to log that back in your mind. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so uh, just, just a really quickly, uh, we don't know who invited Jesus to this wedding. We don't know um, who was even getting married. John's not actually interested in who the bride and the groom are. Wouldn't that be nice to know, like, this was Kate and Harry's wedding? Uh, this, this, or they didn't get married, did this? Megan and Harry and Kate and that other guy. Uh, you know, this is the, this is, this is Jesus's, you know, long lost cousin getting married to this wonderful woman. You know, like we don't know who it is. It's just this nondescript wedding. It's just a wedding. Back then in Jesus's day, uh, as in today, weddings were the most joyful events. Part of my job as someone who is a pastor, one of the greatest joys that I have is to stand in front of uh, two people who are deeply in love with God and each other and to stand there and to say to one another before God and these witnesses, I give you my all. It's this joyful thing. Everybody loves a wedding. 
But weddings back in Jesus' time were a little bit different than the weddings that we have today. Um, next Saturday, this coming up Saturday, I'll fly back to uh, Indiana and perform a wedding ceremony for a kid who I've known for almost uh, 15 years, which is really exciting for me. Um, it's gonna be a really amazing time, a really exciting moment for me to see this, this young man uh, grow up and marry way outside of his league. <laughs> I'm proud of him. But um, immediately after the ceremony, I'm gonna hop a plane and get back here because I'll be with you next Sunday because this is kind of where my family is and where we're gonna worship. And so the wedding for me is gonna be like a four-hour affair. But back in Jesus' day, a wedding was a week-long festival. You, you uh, didn't just plan an afternoon. You didn't just plan a day. You planned a week. The whole town would be invited. Everyone was welcomed at your wedding. It was this ginormous thing. The calcul- imagine this. The calculations for how much food to serve and how much uh, beverages to provide and, and where people are going to sit and who was on the guest list. I mean, all of it was so difficult. It would take a year to actually plan this festival. And the, and the, the, the expectation from everyone around you was that this was going to be the event of a lifetime. You would hire a caterer. You would hire uh, uh, the people to do all the flowers. You'd hire a DJ to keep the party going. But most importantly, you would hire someone called the master of ceremonies. This was like the wedding planner extraordinaire who would make sure that your party went according to plan every step of the way so that you could, in the custom of your day, receive your family and start off on the right foot in society. This was a joyous, most joyful event. Um, But there's a problem at this wedding. There's a problem here in John chapter two. This is actually not luxurious and lavish and exciting. This is quite the opposite. Verse three says this, when the wine, everybody say it with me, was gone. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. The wine had run out. Now to be clear, because I wanna be very very transparent and clear about this. The problem in this text is not that the people were drinking to excess. Drunkenness in the Bible is always uh, looked down upon as less than God's ideal and not the best for us. This is a real problem in our day and age. This is a problem in Jesus' day and age as well, but this isn't the topic that's at hand today. Drunkenness is not really what's in mind here. You see, uh, the Hebrew Bible uses wine as a metaphor for joy. Psalm chapter 104 tells us that God brings forth growth from the earth and he gives that to man to make wine. And then it says to gladden the heart of man. Isaiah chapter 55, we're invited by God to see his kingdom as a place where we come and we buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The rabbis of Jesus' day used to say this. They say, without wine, there is no joy. It's a little bit of a different culture, right? I mean, that's a little bit different than today's culture. Wine in Jesus' time was a symbol of all that was good and holy and joyful. To run out of wine then and the symbol of life and joy would be actually the worst shame imaginable. We don't have too many hard and fast rules today at weddings. As long as the groom and the bride say the right names during their vows, we're all good, aren't we? But back in this time, to run out of wine was a big problem and caused the bride and the groom to be mocked and humiliated indefinitely. You know, pastors, we try and do our homework. And one of the historical documents that I saw while I was putting together this, uh, this, this message was fascinating to me. It was unearthed by someone not, not, not more than 100 years ago, but it said this. It was, a, it was a piece of litigation from this time. And it was a neighbor suing his other neighbor because they ran out of wine at their festival. Which means if you ran out of, your, out of wine, you know, if the bar closed at your wedding, you could be litigated. Talk about shame. Talk about pressure. Talk about a problem. Mary approaches Jesus and she says to him in a panicked, whispered tone, they have no more wine. And... And what she's essentially saying to him is, Jesus, don't you see it? Their joy is gone. 
This couple is about to endure severe societal shame, but on a deeper level, she's saying to him, everything that God has promised in their life for joy and for peace and for prosperity is running out. Hey, here's a question for you. What do you do in your life when your wine runs out? I'm not asking if you go to Missouri to go purchase more. What I'm asking is on a deeper level, on a biblical, like when the joy in your life runs out, where do you go? What do you, what do you cling to? What do you try and spark? What, what, where do you turn to when things have evaporated? When, when the society around you doesn't seem to be accepting you the same way you thought they would? When, when, when there's a problem in your heart where you expected something and you tried to provide it, but only to find out that what you provided wasn't enough and you had run out and you had lost your joy. Where, where do you go? What do you do with that moment? I just wanna have you think about that for a second. We'll come back to that question. But um, here's where Mary goes. Mary, I mean, we could learn from her. She goes to her son, Jesus. She says to him, there's no more wine. And Jesus' response uh, to her in verse four kind of tells us like he understands her insinuation. Like she's telling him, hey, they have no more wine. She doesn't tell him, hey, make more wine, but she's just bringing up the problem to Jesus and letting him figure out the solution. And Jesus kind of understands like, yeah, this is what you're trying to get from me. In verse four, he says this, he says, woman, which in Jesus' day was a term of endearment, uh, like beloved woman, mother, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, the hour of Jesus is the hour of his work that God had sent him to do here on earth. It was the hour of his crucifixion. And Jesus said, well, this is not the mission that I've come to accomplish. What is it to me if this couple runs out of wine? But his mother, just like a good mom would always do, sets her son up for success. And she goes to the servants and she meddles a little bit. I love this about Mary. She doesn't take no for an answer. She goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. I don't know why Mary had such authority in this moment. I don't know if she was related somehow to the bride or the groom or the maitre d' of this, the, the ceremonial master or anything like that, or why they believed in Jesus or why they did what he said. But look at, look at what they did. Here's what Jesus said to the servants, verse, verse six. He said, nearby there were six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each of them holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Everybody say, that's a lot. All right, maybe it's not a lot to you, it's a lot to me. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Can you imagine for a moment just being one of those um, servants who this lady comes up to and says, that guy over there, I know that you got a problem with like wine and everything. The expectation is that the, the, it's going to be replenished. Uh, he's going to tell you what to do. And then the guy over there looks at you and says, you see those big jars over there, those big ones? Yeah, the ones kind of up the hill far away. Would you go fill those up with water? Now, water is an ingredient in wine. Um, it's a good starting point. But he says, just fill them up with Water. If I were one of the servants in my own snarky heart, I would have said, fill it with water. Like, bro, this party is over. You know how long it takes to make wine? Do you understand anything about the chemistry process that has to take place with the fermentation cycle and how long and the older, the better. Am I right? Okay, you don't have to out yourself. That's fine. <laughs> but they do it and they go. And there's no hose to like magically fill up this water. They're, they're schlepping buckets of water, dumping them in all the way. And they fill it. I love this point. They fill it to the brim. That's what I would have done if Jesus was like, hey, you see those stone things over there? Fill those up with the water. I'd be like, you want some water? I'll give you water. You want water? I'll give you water. I'm going to fill this water all the way up to the brim. See what you do with this water. And then Jesus kind of like a, a, a this for that. He kind of looks at them and says, okay, thanks for filling them up all the way to the brim. Now take one cup. That's what he says. Look, look at the next verse. He, he says, um, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. So, so Jesus says, take one cup, one cup, and bring it to the one who's in charge of the party. 
I, I would have a hard time doing this. If I was one of the people who saw where the water came from and put the water into the jars and then saw Jesus tell me, now bring this thing, this cup, to the person who's in control of my paycheck and see what he thinks about it, I don't know that I would have done it. I probably would have said to him, hey, you know, this is your idea, your plan, and I think this next step can only be done by you. Why don't you take the cup to the master of ceremonies and see what he thinks about it? But, but there the servant goes, he dips in a cup and he takes it and, and he finds the master of ceremonies and he brings it to him and the master of ceremonies drinks it. Verse nine, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called for the bridegroom. Can you imagine in, in the servant's mind when he gives this untested, untasted, brand new wine to this master of ceremonies and then the master of ceremonies calls anxiously for the bridegroom, summons him. You know, whenever there's a problem between the people who are in charge of the party, the one who brought the problem to him is usually the one that gets the problem. And he calls out, he says, get me the groom. The servant goes and he comes back with the groom. And I wonder if he was trembling, thinking this is it. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get fired. This party is over. This is gonna be laughing stock. And I was involved in all of this. But notice what the master of ceremony said, verse 10. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. It's just economics. But he says this, but you have saved the best until now. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then after everyone's had their you know, drink, they bring out the cheaper wine. But you have saved the best for last. And this is an incredible miracle that had been performed, one which uh, had expectations all along the way, which Jesus had defied, where he didn't even want to get involved, but then he turned it around and, and, and provided something brand new for this groom. And, and this is what John summarizes it all with in, in this, this last verse, John uh, verse 2, verse 11. He says this, he says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. And John, he calls the miracles of Jesus signs, through which Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. This isn't just a story of long ago customs and a long forgotten miracle. This is the first sign miracle of Jesus, one of which we expect to have happened in our lives today as well. If we could see and believe and have faith in Jesus, here's what, here's what the miracle is that we learn through John chapter two, verses one through 11, is that Jesus can transform anything. Like Jesus transforms. If you just need two words today, it's just this. Jesus transforms. He's a transformer. Not like Bumblebee. <laughs> One of our staff members was telling me, he's like, you can't talk about Jesus being a transformer if you don't talk about the fact that his name would be Alpha Omegatron. <laughs> and I was like, that's really, that's really funny, actually. Totally, totally. Jesus, Jesus clearly has changed everything. John tells us in verse 11 that this was the first sign that he did, the one of turning water into wine of Galilee. It revealed his glory. But if we think about this for a moment, what glory did Jesus get? The person who got the glory in this story is actually the groom. The groom is the one who's lauded as the one who had saved the best for last. The groom is the one who was so lavish that he gave, you know, usually the, the good wine first and everybody had had their fill and then the cheap wine, but, but he had given the good wine first and then even greater wine second. If anybody's getting glory here in this moment, it's not Jesus, it's the one who was lauded, it was the groom. But if we think about this story from a deeper level, we, we realize that Jesus has not just the power and the, the might to transform the chemistry of water and put it into wine. Jesus has the power and the might to transform even our souls, that which is not seen, to understand who he is and to believe in him. There is a greater depth of the joy that we understand when we allow Jesus to transform not just the world around us, but the world also within us. This is what the story is pushing towards, is that Jesus will transform not just what you see and what you taste, but who you are and how you live.
See, Jesus transforming water into wine shows us that he's better than the box. I think that's really, if, if this story was to happen today, um, that's what the master of ceremonies would have said to the groom. He would have said, you know, most people just serve box wine at a wedding, but this stuff here is better than the box. This, this here is, is truly unexpected and, un, and delightful and so, so much greater than what is common. And Jesus always does this in our lives. He gives us more than we bargained for. Isn't this the way of Christ? To, to, to see a problem in our need and to give us more than you ever thought was possible. To, to give you not just a, a new joy, but a greater joy. A joy that truly satisfies. A joy that is abundant. A joy that is authentic. A joy that doesn't grow old. This is how Jesus transforms us, is that he gives us his newness, his authenticity, his abundance, his satisfaction. Now, um, there's a couple ways that we could take this whole story and try and figure out how we fit into this it's ourselves. Um, but I wanna teach us a method. I wanna teach us to look deep into the scriptures and to understand that um, there's a meaning here for the realms in which Jesus transforms our lives. That if we just you know, threw darts at the walls of our lives, we could pick you know, different ways that Jesus transforms our joy. But I think there's four categories at play here in this story that actually are really pertinent to us. Where if we just take some time to stop and think about it, we'd actually look and see like, wow, Jesus has, has transformative power extensively in our lives, but in very specific ways. I think there's four boxes that Jesus is better than, if I can use that metaphor a little bit longer. And, and, the, and I wanna just walk us through this because I think the first box that Jesus is transforming here that he wants to transform in our lives too, a joy that he wants to give us deeper in our lives than, than what we currently possess or what we settle for. I've kind of been dancing around it all day, but, but um, the, the way Jesus transforms us is he transforms that which we consume. He, he, he transforms the categories in our lives of food and drink. You know where a lot of people go to find their joy these days? When COVID hit and you were stuck in your house, two things happened. Your grocery bill spiked and nationally we understand that alcohol sales doubled, right? Our joy had run out. Our wine, so to speak, had run out. And so what did we all do? We got out the Traeger, we started smoking our own meats and drinking a little bit more wine. And a lot of us do this in this world, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a habit of humans because there's a lot of joy in good food, good company and good drink, is there not? I, I know that we're a different type of church, but I wanna ask you to be bold right now. Have you ever had a meal that was just so satisfying and so great you remember it in your mind? Anybody there? Yeah, food and drink have a way of transporting us, don't they? I mean, this is why we have the Food Network, for goodness sakes. We all watch these things and watch people grow in their ability to, to create and to be culinary masters. And, and all of us at some level have been designed in our, our habits for more. You know, food is something that we have to go back for. Our cravings always call out for more and more and more. And so our joy is almost like a consumption that we consume and we find ourselves feeling better for a moment. How many of us have had great steak only to realize that had they let you get like 128 ounces of filet instead of six, you would like all of it until you didn't like any of it. Because the problem with food and drink is that when you go to excess, it actually hurts you. There, there is a limit to which food and drink will allow us in this world to experience joy. And so when Jesus comes, he, he works in the chemistry and in the, the work of the culinary arts to, to bring about something that was truly delightful, had a depth of, of, of joy in the midst of it. And he takes something that's all common for us, something that we consume. And he tells us, when you come to me, and you watch me take common, ordinary things in your life and turn them around, it's going to be so much of it that you'll never run out of joy. Jesus offers us in the physical world a joy, an experience that with him heightens what's already there. Truly, the only way for you to really act, uh, then actually enjoy a good steak 
or brisket is to do so understanding the joy of Jesus. Because otherwise, if you're just enjoying food for what it is, you're actually just indulging in yourself. But there's a worshipful moment that the joy of Jesus provides us when we have something good and pure and and excellent. I would even call a good steak holy. I don't know if that's okay or not. That, That when it's put inside the context of what God has done in our lives, the joy that is richer because we're not seeking our joy in this thing, we're seeking our joy in him. This thing then has a depth which is uncommon and good. That's the, that's the first box that Jesus transforms. It's the box of food and drink. But, but let's not lose the sight of the fact that this happens at a wedding. This miracle takes place at a public of spectacle, a very social affair. It's at a wedding. When I think of the box that Jesus is greater than here, it's, it's the box of relationships and marriage. It makes me think about that little box that carried that very precious gem that was fastened into a ring that I held in my pocket that day that I asked Kristen to be my wife. You know that box, that, that, you know. In Chicago, we had all these crazy jewelry stores that had jingles. I don't know what that is out in Kansas City, but you know, it's that, that, that whole thing of, of she said yes, right? So many of us, we grow up, there's a story that's told to us that the happiest day of your life is when she said yes like the greatest moment of your life is in the relationships that you find here in your life. I remember um, getting down on my knee and opening the box. Thankfully, she said yes. There was a couple walking by in the park and they freaked out. It was so great. They were like, they're getting engaged. Oh my goodness. And it just added to our excitement. Like people saw the world knew they're rejoicing. They're their fireworks. And... Um, Kristen and I have been married now for 11 years. Are there honest people in this church? Okay, because um, if I could be honest with you, our joy has been great. Our joy has been deep. Our joy has been felt. Like being with my wife, knowing that she's got my back and I've got hers is one of the greatest joys in this world. But that joy is unsustainable. And if if you're honest and you're here today with your spouse, you know the lie is that once she she says yes, it's all up and to the right from there. Like it's just gonna get better. It's just gonna be more. It's just gonna be bliss. you're, You're gonna end up on a Cialis commercial in two hot tubs at the end of your days. Like this is where you're headed. It's gonna be amazing. I don't know why that's the picture that came to my mind, but that's... Where it went. I, I remember, I remember early into year one experiencing tension in our relationship. E- experiencing, you know, this, this difference between us of opinions. And early on in our marriage, the joy ran out. The wine ran out. And it ran out because I was looking in my relationships and in marriage for for that to satisfy me in a way that it was never designed to satisfy me. It's only through Jesus' transformative power that this couple here, who was on the brink of societal shame forever, who who, who didn't realize where their world was heading, it's only here in this wedding in John chapter two that Jesus intervenes before they even knew it, that he came together and brought them more joy. I mean, imagine, we don't have the details of this wedding after the master of ceremony says, but you saved the choice wine until now. But this had to have been the greatest party in Cana probably till this day. And what did Jesus do? He walked into a wedding and he said, I love marriage and I love you and I love these people so much that I'm not willing to let you endure this shame. I'm gonna renew your joy. Before you even have a chance to mess it up on your own, I'm going to give you a depth of joy here so that your relationship in me might flourish and you might have real, uncommon, generous, abundant joy in the way you approach one another. If you're struggling in your marriage, I want to give you some good news today. Jesus transforms marriages. He does it all the time. When the wine has run out, He provides something that is deeper, a common experience, a common satisfaction that's only found in him. Jesus transforms our relationships and our marriages. And there is hope for that joy. 
quickly, the, the third box that I think of that Jesus transforms here is the one that is societal. So if Jesus transforms the physical world and he transforms the uh, relational world, he also transforms the societal world. This is a couple who is on the brink of societal ruin. This is a couple who is about to be shamed. They're about to be boycotted the rest of their life. This guy might never get a job. He might be sued. They might be run out of town. And here Jesus comes in and he rescues them from the situation and he turns them from being the shame of the town to the talk of the town. They were looking for their significance and their reputations to be bolstered by this wedding, but Jesus came in and said, on the brink of ruin, I'm gonna give you ultimate significance and an ultimate reputation. And this is what Jesus did. And the box that it hits me hardest in, in my life, is this box right here. You know this box? Maybe some of you are like, Dan, that's a rectangle. Let me be a little bit more specific. How about this box right here? This bastion of our lives of, of um, do you like me? Do you see me? Do you love me? Will you give me a heart? Will you like my story? Will you throw me fire? Will you, will you, will you? That was just random. That's, that's our conversation card for later today. Can you even see this? You can't see this. Whatever. It's fine. It was great. It was divine. It was inspired, but you didn't see it. Now, I wonder, I wonder how, how you and I look for approval in our social media usage, right? How we look for joy in the things that we post. We go on an epic vacation. We want the world to see it. We want them more than experiencing the thing. We want everybody else to say, wow, that was amazing. And how many of us have gone on the thing, done the thing, put up the post, gotten the hit of dopamine only to find out that our joy faded, the wine ran out. And I wonder if our significance and our joy is found in our reputation more than it's found in our relationship with Jesus. There, there is something that Jesus is doing here for this couple where he steps in the gap and he says, it's not about who you're gonna make yourself to be, it's who I'm gonna make you to be. Which means friends, for all of us who know Jesus, who have come to Jesus and have tried to build our own brands for lack of a better word, but we've come to Christ, there is no one more significant in the world for you to know than him. And there is no one more significant in the world to say, I like you, than Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel is that you've done nothing, but Jesus still loves you. You've done nothing, but Jesus still cares for you. You've done nothing, but Jesus still thinks the world of you. So much that he would give and serve and sacrifice himself for you and, and, and do miracles all the time, unaware in your life that you, do, you, can't even, you can't even see him, what he's doing, but he's building up your significance and your reputation, not here on earth, but in heaven. Far greater is a depth of joy that comes in this life when I don't have to please you because he pleases me and I'm pleased by him. When God is our joy, when Jesus has transformed our joy, it changes this box. And the final one is this, the context of this, this story that John doesn't want us to miss, verse six pulled it out very clearly. It said um, that there, were, there was a couple jars nearby that the Jews used for the rites of purification. Jesus is better than the you know, physical box. He's better than the relational box. He's better than the societal box. But Jesus is also, and this may blow our minds here at church, but he's better than the religious box. He's much better than the religious box. Why is he better than the religious box? Well, he's better than dead religion, external religion. I don't know if you've ever tried this before, a way to like find more peace and inner tranquility in your life by doing more religious activities, whatever that religion was. See, religion has a way of dealing with externals that never changes the internals. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus chose six jars that were used in purifying religious people to do his miracle in. He takes those jars and he fills them up with water to the brim, more than they would have ever been used before. And these are the jars where you would go up to and you'd wash your hands in them. It's like the liquid hand sanitizer that we put everywhere. You would go up there and you'd wash your hands in them and you'd have this way of washing your hands so that you could be acceptable and clean before everybody else, before you walked in. Kind of like Brad was talking about, the paint chips getting off your hands so that you can come and be approached by God. But, but Jesus shows us this, is that something that's a vessel for just curing externals will never cure your internal heart. I don't know how many things you've tried. How many times you've tried on January 1st to just read your Bible the whole year 
and by January 10th, you kind of missed it a couple days and you gave up and you started to feel guilt over it. And, and what I want to say today is Jesus has a greater joy for you than just that dead external desire. Reading your Bible is a great thing. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But, but, but Jesus wants more from us than just going through the motions of these externals. He wants from us to see and to understand and to experience and to taste how he changes dead religion into living relationships. How Jesus can take that which is just perfunctory, right? That just means going through the motions of your life. He can take that and he can turn it all around so that you actually experience his life through you. So that when we come into this place, we're not just exercising dead religion. When we tune in online, we're not just exercising dead religion because it's Sunday. When we gather together, there's something that's transformative about this because the presence of Jesus and his power changes our joy. And he turns this space from a place of mourning into a place of rejoicing, doesn't he? I mean, he turns our, our worship, our, our, our desire for him into something that is vibrant and alive. It's been a long time for me since I've gone through the motions with Jesus because I've seen how he transforms dead religion into something that is alive and living and active. So that when I approach his word, we'll talk more about this in future weeks, but when I approach his word, I know that God, you're actually saying something to me right now. When I come to him in prayer, I understand, God, you're actually speaking to me as I speak to you right now. As I come to sing together with other people, I understand, God, you actually hear what we're saying to you and you see our hearts. Jesus transforms our joy. So where do you go for your joy? This is the question. When your wine runs out, where do you go? Do you go to food and drink? Do you go to those relationships that, that try and fill you up? Do, do you go to significance and building your reputation? Do, do you go to religion? Jesus says, you can go to those things, but without me, it's empty. And so what do we do? Like, how do we allow this transformation to take place? It was, it was in the last verse. The last thing that, that Jesus actually said to us was, was this. And I want to read this backwards for us. John chapter 2, verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, which was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It doesn't tell us that everybody at the wedding believed in him. It doesn't tell us that the bridegroom believed in him. It doesn't tell us the master of ceremonies believed in him. It was his disciples, the ones who saw what he was doing. They saw his transformative power and they believed. Jesus had done a miracle of changing the chemistry of water into wine. He did it without grapes that we know of, without any type of intervention from the earth. He just did it with a flick of his mind, with his finger. He did it because his mother had asked him to. He did it because they were on the brink of societal shame, but he did it because he was at a wedding. But John chapter two, verse one, this is what I wanna pull us to. He did it because he was at a wedding on the third day. On the third day. Where else in John do we hear about the third day that Jesus does something transformative. Where else in John do we hear about joy being resurrected? Where else in John do we hear the third day being a cue for us to see the transformative power that Jesus holds over anything else? It's, it's at the end. It's his last sign. John chapter 20, verse one. It's, it's early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Jesus had been in the tomb for three days. And the final sign that Jesus would do was not a chemistry experiment or dabbling in the world of chemistry, but it was a change in biology. It was something that Jesus did when he actually got to the core of our life itself to take death and transform it into life. Faith in this moment that Jesus has the power to change our lives is all that we have today to step out in and to experience this joy. And this is what I want to get into our minds. There's literally nothing I can do today to tell you to go experience more joy except to believe in Jesus.
that by believing in him and seeing what he's done and understanding who he is, it changes the world around us to live in vibrant color, to have this joy dug deep down into our hearts so that food and drink don't just become superficial pleasures, but they become joyful, worshipful experiences. So that your marriage doesn't just become a thing you've got to manage, but something that gives life to both of you because you're dug deep into the joy of the resurrected Jesus. So that when you're questing for significance and reputation, you don't have to settle for less than what God has given you. He's given you significance and he's given you a reputation if you would believe in what he has done. When we come together, we, we don't just gather as people who believe in the religious symbols of a book and a cross and a dove and some water. But we believe when Jesus actually transformed wine the second time at that last supper, when he gathered with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it, he said, this is my body. And then he took wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood. We realize what Jesus was doing was changing the whole entire world to have access into him. Which means for all of us, we just have to ask this question, do I believe? And do you? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to renew your joy? Do you, do you see his tremendous potential to be able to turn your world around? Because if you do, then you're already experiencing the transformation one step at a time in your life as you pursue the uncomfortable reality that God is putting more joy in you through the trials, more joy in you through the pain, more joy in you through the tensions, more joy through you through the disappointments. That Jesus' presence by faith is the catalyst to actually change your joy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is a miracle that you did so many years ago that you took a substance and you converted it over without a process. And you take us and you convert us, but you use a process. I'm so glad, Father, that you have welcomed us into this miracle of life that can be changed, of, of life that can grow, of life that can be transformed. Father, as we think about processes, as we go forward, God, we just understand that that process begins with faith. And so today, right here, right now, Father, where, where, wherever anyone is listening to the sound of my voice or praying with, with me here, Father, would you help us hear in our hearts the places we've gone for joy that hasn't paid out? Would you help us understand our own hearts well enough to see the places that we try to renew our joy when the wine in our lives runs out? And Jesus, would you be better than the box? All of these boxes that we've talked about, Jesus, would you be the one that fills us up, that gives us hope, that renews us with an uncomfortable joy, a joy we don't understand, a joy we can't express, but a joy that is holy from you. Jesus, this is the promise that you give us in this ready for more type life, that you will give us joy. And so we look at you and we say, we believe and you are good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, next week, I really hope you can come back, tune in with us uh, from wherever you are, because next week, Brad Herndon will be wrapping up this series for us on Ready for More Change. And we're going to be putting a little bit more feet to what we've just said today. I hope you can be there. Until then, we love you.